0: Hello, hello, and welcome to Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is 4S. I'm David Johnson. Let's get started. Today, we have John Piper. He's doing a the first part of a two-part series. I don't know that I will get to the second part next week, uh, but I might come back and swing around for that second part As some of you know by now, John Piper is one of, if not my favorite, preachers. Uh, I love a John Piper sermon. I love his delivery. I love his passion. And I love the fact that he does not steer away from challenging issues. And when there is something crazy about the Christian doctrine, he embraces it head on. He'll try to explain it. He has enough self awareness to most of the time recognize that there's something crazy, uh, and he will try to give it an explanation. But he does state his opinion squarely. There's no dancing around. You know, if you could uh, get him on a podcast, I think you could have a real conversation with this guy. Uh, furthermore, he's very, very mainstream. And so if you want to know, what mainstream Christians at church in the Spring. pew are hearing and what mainstream Christians have been taught to believe. Listen to John Piper. Whatever Father, you're studying, of at least make sure one of the things you the uh, look at is a John Piper From John 3, sermon. He is... Uh, he, he's that I pray guy.
1: That some will uh, he's that go-to guy.
0: So I, I love John Piper. Into the light you will notice, though, that he has a lot of disagreements
1: firmly uh, with the
0: guy we listened to the last couple of weeks, and made Jeff to taste Durbin. The glories I also really love, love Jeff Durbin, he's a Calvinist. John Piper is not a Calvinist. However, if you're not so careful... You will hear some very Calvinist in souls, themes in John Piper's make its sermons. Way into the That's because of our Calvinism has seeped into what we think of as mainstream and Christianity. Our it's infused throughout. And our I will be stopping years, this sermon and um, and, our and uh, pointing and out some our things throughout the process of this sermon. Uh, we will play it in its entirety. Leisure. um Except for a little, little announcements at the end, John and we're talking over the prayer for beginners at the beginning. alone. Uh, there's a lot to talk about here, a so lot to engage with with a with a John Piper sermon. And so we're gonna take our time. This one might go a little I long. Ask for your help. I'm sorry, either that or these great you're truths welcome.
1: are over me.
0: Okay. They are yours. Let's let's get into this. You're listening to John Piper. Pray in Jesus' name. On Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon.
1: So we're going to focus, Lord willing, for two weeks, this week and the following week on John 3.16. And on the two verses that follow it, which are given by Jesus, to explain and support it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes on him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed on the name of the only Son of God. You think that's worth two weeks? It's worth a lifetime. It is not hard, is it, to understand why John 3.16 is Perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. Perhaps the most memorized verse in the Bible. Perhaps the most loved verse in the Bible. It is not hard to see why that's the case. The reason, among others, is that in this verse, there are such massive realities. Seven or eight of them realities greater than which doesn't exist god love the world son of god faith in god perishing forever and living forever and whoever You or not. It's just there's nothing bigger. You you can't assemble bigger realities than are here. These are the greatest things that exist. So, what could be more important for you? What could be more urgent? For you right now, what could be more relevant for your life than to know where you stand in relation to what God says about these seven or eight great things? What? what? Nothing. Whatever you have on your mind right now does not come close. It's like a candle compared to the sun unless you have this on your mind. May God come. May God give you a heart to listen. These are the most important things in the universe for you. We're not playing games. We're not doing a little study here. We're meeting God. We're facing eternity. We're dealing with whether we're going to die forever in hell or we're going to go to heaven with God forever in life. And what makes the difference, and how does that happen? These are the greatest realities that are.
0: If you're taking a poll, we have another vote for dying and going to hell, a literal hell that you go to, forever, eternal. Uh, so you're, it's eternal. Is it conscious? Is it torment? He'll tell us as uh, as the time goes on. I may or may not point it out what he does, but I assure you, uh, he believes in eternal conscious torment, and uh, he will say so. So if, if you're tallying up mainstream preachers and their views on hell, because we, we've talked about hell here a lot, here's another one for the, I'll just go ahead and call it the traditional view, which I have been espousing for years.
1: So if you have lesser things in your mind right now, ask God to replace them for the next thirty minutes or so with this.
0: This is such a small thing, but uh, can God do that? Can you just replace what's in your mind with something else? Can you just pray? You know, Lord, I'm really distracted. Can you take away all of the distractions from me because that would be so useful? <laughs> that that doesn't seem that doesn't seem right.
1: And may the Spirit give you grace to receive the Word of God. Here's the plan. John 3.16, in this service, I'll walk through it once, stopping at each of those those words, those great things, and make a comment about them and stop. And try to apply them in their weightiness to us as we go along. I will leave out what may be the most precious word of all and devote the entirety of next week to that one word. I'm going to leave out the word loved. Now, one of the reasons that I must devote a week, a sermon to loved is because as you read, John 3, 16, for God so loved, so loved, in this way loved the world that he gave his son so that anybody who believes wouldn't have to go to hell, but would go into everlasting joy. The the reason that has to have a sermon, that love piece, is because attention is created here with verse 8 and last time's message. The wind blows where it wills. You hear the sound of it? You don't know where it comes from or where it's going. There is a freedom in the wind. so is everyone who is born of God the Spirit. And only those are born again have the life, referred to in verse 16, and enter the kingdom, which is eternal life. So verse 8 highlights the absolute freedom of God to land where he will on dead sinners and make them alive. And he doesn't do it for everybody.
0: What he said here, in case you couldn't hear it, he doesn't do it for everyone. God, God brings people from death to life, but He doesn't do it for everyone. Uh, that's a very Calvinist idea, and uh, it'll get more Calvinist as we as we go along. But I just wanted to point that out, and also uh, just recognizing that you may not have heard it. Uh, just a technical note here: John Calvin. Uh, I'm sorry, John Piper is a man in desperate need of a compressor so for you uh you audio geeks out there you'll uh, you'll perhaps know what i mean he has very loud highs and very soft lows uh the the dynamic range of his presentation was well, fun to listen to in person i imagine but it's really hard to record uh, and there's a lot of echo in his room. And so, you know, one moment he's shouting and it's loud and you're backing away. And another moment he's practically whispering and you're leaning in trying to hear what he says. Uh, so you are not hearing the pure audio of this. I have compressed this track to within an inch of its life. I've removed a lot of the noise because the track is very noisy, a lot of... Anyway, a lot of that stuff going on in there. So I've done some fancy maneuvering to try to make this a little bit more listenable. And no matter what I do, his soft spots are still too soft. Uh, and uh, I've, I've done the best I can. So you might have to lean in uh, every now and then to hear what he says. And a lot of times, the important thing that he says... Often for emphasis, because he's yelling, 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 and then he'll whisper for emphasis. You got to really lean in. You might have to rewind to hear that, but I just don't want you to miss what he said here because it's so important uh, to the theme. This salvation, not for everyone. He says something later that kind of contradicts that, but let's um, let's let's hear it for uh, for ourselves. Not a single,
1: dead, rebellious sinner on the planet deserves to be born again, deserves to be made alive in Christ Jesus. Nobody deserves to be rescued from the deadness of their rebellion. We all deserve to be left there, and God leaves many.
0: Let's uh, check another box while we're at it. This is another one of those uh, Christians who teaches it um, in a fairly traditional way. We're all scumbags. We're dirt. We all deserve to die. We all deserve hell. Uh, We are all dead in our sins. We are filthy, disgusting maggots in the sight of God. Maggots, I say. In the sight of God and we deserve nothing more than to be left in that condition sometimes people argue with me when i when i say this as a when i offer this as a, a view from scripture and from mainstream christian teaching well with regard to that argument i win <laughs> so Uh, That's unfortunate because that means we all lose. Because that that is a terrible, terrible message. And that's what's being piped by the piper into the ears of millions every week. Every week.
1: And then comes verse 16. For God so loves, so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe would not perish and stay in the deadness where we all live, but be saved, born again, forgiven, accepted, loved, and enter life forever. There's a tension there. And the efforts to relieve that tension between verse 8 and verse 16 very often strip 8 or 16 of its meaning. And we're not going to go there. We are Bible people. And we let the Bible has have its say. And the question is, well, then, if you let both of the verses have their say, what's the truth? How do we talk to unbelievers about God's love for them? That's next time. In fact, I would encourage you to uh, bring some people who wrestle with this. You all know what I'm talking about, who struggle with this issue. I'll give you another heads up. I have been very helped by a book that was recommended over at CDG conference, I heard, namely Don Carson's book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. It's less than 90 pages, it's readable, and it's very good. So, buy it, get it from the library, and uh, you will be helped by it. Don Carson, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, this week, we move through the verse one piece at a time one glorious mountain peak at a time in order to let it have its proper effect and oh how i hope you bethlehem saints know that this foundational verse is not just for beginners It is high-level, high-voltage shock therapy for marriage struggles, single struggles, teenage struggles. Seven mountain peaks. Number one, God. For God so loved there's no reason here to think anything other than that Jesus meant the God he knew from reading his Old Testament, namely the God of the Old Testament. He is the all powerful creator and sustainer of the universe. He is a person, not a force, merely. That means he thinks, he wills, he feels, he loves, he hates. As a person, God is moral, meaning he deals with us in terms of right and wrong, good and bad. It also means that in his moral dimension, he is absolutely and perfectly righteous. He does everything that's right and only does what is right, and since he has no book to consult about what is right, he defines right, and right is always what is in harmony what he, with his infinite value. All thinking, all feeling, all acting that is out of step, out of sync with the infinite worth of God is not right acting, thinking, and feeling. And all thinking and feeling and acting that is in perfect harmony with the infinite worth of God is right thinking and right acting and right feeling. God is absolutely right just in that he always acts and thinks and feels in perfect accord and harmony with his infinite worth all of us were made by him it is our first and highest duty to honor him and thank him and not one person has ever done so except jesus
0: okay i gotta cut in right there um r- really so uh, first of all as he's describing god he's he's on the god part you notice how uh all of those descriptions that he gives none of none of those are actually in the passage that he's talking about and it seems like anyone can just make up a god just different Define him into existence. And this what this is what this feels like. It's just a God being defined into existence. He has all of these characteristics. Well, how do you know that? <laughs> what is what do you know about God's characteristics? Well, you know, most of this stuff we might glean from stuff in the Old Testament. Right, right. Of course. Right next to passages where we would say, no, that was someone else um, misinterpreting who God is. I so I don't know where you get this from. This reminds me a lot of William Lane. Craig's, um, argument from, um, uh, uh, cosmology, um, his, his version of the Kalam, where you have kind of a basic Kalam start. And then his, his second part goes into various descriptions of God, which are necessary uh, factors of God. And one just scratches their head wondering, how did you get there? That's a that's a major leap from where you started to where you are. Uh, why is why are any of those things necessary for a God being to exist? And so I felt like that with Piper. But the reason I stopped at where I did is because of another thing that he says that I have been trying to uh, bring out and emphasize. God is a glory beast. He thrives on your glory and praise. And Piper says. You can rewind it a little bit if you like. Piper says that we were made to honor him. That's why we're here, folks. You're not here to live your best life and have all of the great experience. You're here to honor and glorify God, you fool. You are the mirror that God looks into and says, mirror, mirror on the wall, Who's the fairest of them all? And you are supposed to reflect back his glory to him. He wants it. He demands it. And that's what you're here for. And yet there is the most extraordinary thing that he says in this section. No one in the world has ever done it. Now, we know the world has been awash in worshipers, religious worshipers, not just religious worshipers, Christian worshipers. The world has been awash in Christian worshipers, and yet none of them apparently have given God the glory he deserves. We fail with our best efforts. We continue again and again to fail to give him the proper glory. And Piper is talking about the people who are trying really hard and, and he says, Jesus is the only one who's ever done it. Okay, John, by what standard do you figure that out? We only have snapshots of Jesus' life. But yet he's the only one who has ever glorified God properly. Really? Really? He's the only one who's ever lived a worthy life. Really? We don't see that in the snapshots shots we're given. And so we just have to take it on faith that all of Jesus' brief 30 years was just God-glorifying squared. It's just glory after glory given to God through the life of Jesus, and he never does anything wrong. But we humans, everyone else, we always do, several times a day, several times a minute. But Jesus was perfect. How do we get that claim? How do we validate a claim like that? That's just fantasy. That's just defining a God and a Jesus into existence. But if you're a Christian, you think that you're glorifying God. You are not. You fool.
1: And therefore, we are all perishing because in his righteousness, he does not sweep our unrighteousness under the rug as though his worth had no worth. It will be dealt with either in hell or on the cross. God is righteous. Number two, the world. For God so loved the world. The most common meaning for the world in the book of John, the gospel of John, is the created fallen totality of mankind.
0: I'll just jump in here and let him uh, continue from, uh, from that point. But I just wanted to point out, Jeff Durbin spent a, a nice long section last week telling us that is exactly not what world means in this passage. And I have a sense that Jeff Durbin is probably more of a scholar than John Piper. So Jeff Durbin informs us emphatically that John Piper's definition of world is wrong. You know, John Piper has the, the majority report. So he's, he's saying what mainstream Christians tend to say. Now, who am I supposed to believe between these two men? Um, Piper is going to continue talking about world for a little bit. And if you could just recall some of last week's sermon and some of the things that Jeff Durbin says, you'll just see that these two are polar opposites on what this verse means by a simple word like that. What chance do you have?
1: It's not talking about a earth and fire planet. It's talking about people. The created, fallen totality of mankind. I'll read you a couple of verses to show you that. This is John 7, verse 7. The world, Jesus says to his disciples, the world cannot hate you. It hates me. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. That's the world. Or John 14, 17. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. That's the world. The world is evil. That is, all people are evil. All people are in opposition to God. Even religions that talk of God do not love God, do not honor God, do not know God because John makes it crystal clear and Jesus Over and over again, if you don't know me, you don't know him. If you don't love me, you don't love him. If you don't honor me, you don't honor him. And he said it mainly to the Pharisees who knew God better than any religion in the world. And he said, they don't know God. So it's a matter if you're talking to people about our very religious, they talk God, 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 they get God language all over the place and they reject Jesus. They don't know God. The way John is using the word world here is that way. It's the great mass of fallen humanity that needs salvation. It's the countless number of perishing people in history and in the world. It's the, it's the group, this ocean of people from whom the whoever's come that is Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. The whoever's come from the ocean of the world that God loves. That's the world. Number three, gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. Two things need to be said about this word Gave. One is that it is a giving from heaven to earth. And the other is that it is a giving to die. Verse 17 replaces the word give with the word send and shows us the first point. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So send into the world. Send into the world is what give means in verse 16 first. That's the first meaning it has. So the giving we're talking about here is there was in heaven a being called the son and he was sent to earth. Second point, I get this from John 10. Well, lots of places, but this is the easiest place to see it. John 10, 17 goes like this. Jesus says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and i have authority to take it up this charge i received from my father so now we know what the giving means it means i give my son a charge go die so i'm sending A lot of other things that are going to happen while you're down there, but there's one main thing I want you to do. There is something that is very hard for us to, to feel the weight of. I'll try to help more next time, next Sunday, Saturday. It is as though only a million times more so, you should say to your child, your daughter, your son, there's something I want you to do for me. Okay, Daddy. I have some enemies who hate me and that deserve to perish, and I want you to go and die in their place so that they can have eternal life.
0: And the, the sickness the malignancy of the Christian thought process is laid bare right there. Just go ahead and rewind and listen to it again. Double face palm and weep. This is the gospel as understood by most Christians. This is penal substitutionary atonement in its sickest barest possible presentation hey son there's something i'm gonna need you to do for me i got some enemies you see they want to kill me so i want you to go and die for them i have so much more (laughs) to say about this but i'll let you sit with that thought for a moment
1: Whatever else you know about God, know that. Whatever other confusing things you run into in the Bible, know this. God said to the Son, I have a mission. There are enemies, and I want to save them, and I would like you to to suffer and die in their place so that I can. Whatever else you know about God, know that. Number four, the Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Muslims and others stumble over the idea that God has a son. So let me say a few things and perhaps say them in a way and specifically with verses so that you can help your friend who stumbles like that. God did not have sex with Mary in order to have a son hear that all over the world in muslim contexts god did not have sex with mary in order to have a son turn with me please back to chapter 1 where the basic understanding that john has laid for us knowing we'll have knowing this is a strange strange thing to say that god has a son that's a strange thing to say we Christians, we've taken it for granted for decades, but a brand new person who's never stumbled onto Christianity and hears that God has a son won't have any idea how to conceive of such a thing. Must have had sex with some goddess or something, you know. So John knows this is coming. John, John, is, John is giving us help here. He's not leaving us adrift with conceptual confusion about how to think about about this. So read verse, read the first verse of the gospel with me. All right, we're in John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now so far, no mention of any Son, just Word. And he says three things about the Word. Number one, He is God. The word was God. Number two, he is with God and therefore distinct from God. The word was with God. Number three, he has always been in existence and did not come into being because he was God. In the beginning was the word. Those are three absolutely massively important and crystal clear statements from verse one. You don't need a seminary education to see that. Those are simple, straightforward,
0: gargantuanly, mysteriously important. All right, just clear. I think you mean just no. No, they are not simple. They're not mysteriously clear. They're neither mysterious nor clear. They're oxymoronic. And extremely confusing. And I think part of the problem here, I mean, I don't want to turn this into a discussion on the Trinity, but I think part of the problem is the word God is doing too much work. Now, you can see uh, Dale and I debate the Trinity. You'd have to go back into the Skeptics and Seekers archives to do that, but we do have a discussion. It was one of our uh, last discussions, I think, um, not the last, but one of the last Uh, and Dale lays out, um, his ideas about the Trinity and, um, it was confusing then. It's confusing now. And once again, I think the word God is doing too much work here. So if we replaced God with the word himself, uh, he says, Jesus is God. So, okay. So Jesus is himself. And he says, Jesus is with God, so Jesus is with himself. He says Jesus is distinct from God, so Jesus is distinct from himself. Jesus is himself, Jesus is with himself, Jesus is distinct from himself. This is nutbags. That's, That's just not sensible in Christians. You know you don't understand this. You should stop pretending that this makes sense because it just makes you seem loony. Even to yourself, it has to make you seem loony. This is not a mystery. Stop calling it a mystery as if the word mystery somehow explains everything. It explains nothing. All it explains is the fact that you have come up with a way of taking nonsensical things and shrugging it off and and moving on to, the next buffet. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're talking about. And pretend John Piper pretending that this is simple. It's clear you don't need a seminary education. What are you talking about? You need a seminary degree, a a um, physics degree, <laughs> a, a psychology degree. You need a philosophy degree just to begin to understand the basics of the Trinity. If it if it can be understood at all. So, yeah, I think the problem here is that the word God is doing too much work, and we just need to get off this idea that God is a singular being and not a plurality. God is a plurality. Just just go with that. You would be way much better off. Give up on the idea of one God as a singular being, and just say that God is a committee of individual personalities and, and they're all a part of the committee known as God, uh, kind of like the, um, the president's administration. You know, the, we don't think of the president's administration as one person, although we might say the Biden administration. We know that that con- contains many individuals. So it's a plurality. Um, and I think that's just a, a much more sensible way to talk about God. Um, But if you insist on this singular being, he is one, then you can't say things like, Jesus is God, and he was with God, and he's distinct from God. Because all you're saying is Jesus is himself, he is with himself, and distinct from himself. and, And at that point, that's when they come in and wrap you up in a nice, tight jacket. It's crazy making. Leave it alone.
1: Now... Drop to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Now here it comes. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now you've got an idea about the Son. It's not some product of sexual union with a goddess or Mary. This is the word. And now we know something about the son. The son is God. He is God. Number two, we know he is with God and therefore distinct from God, which is why he's called son and the one who sent him is called father. This relationship, number three, has always existed and never had a beginning. Hard to conceive. Little children will ask you, where did Jesus come from? Where did God come from? How did they get started? And there is no answer to how they got started because
0: they didn't get started. Oh, wait, hang on. Uh, let me go back and read the text of the sermon. Uh, John three sixteen. Okay, here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Huh. There's an archaism in here. Begotten, begotten. What does that mean? Okay, here we go. Typically of a man, sometimes of a man and a woman bring a child into existence by the process of reproduction. But Jesus was always here and didn't come into being. God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son. It was a process of reproduction. It does not compute. I'm out again.
1: This is the most mind-boggling reality that is. God is as father, son and Holy Spirit, one God, one divine essence, one divine nature in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, existing in a relationship of infinite purity and joy always. World without end. Or beginning. That's who He sent. Five, believe. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes Four observations about believing. It's getting very close to you now, right? we have been out there in the big world of being, and now the question is you. This is you here. Do you do this? Is the most urgent, existential, relevant question of your life. Do I do this? Because if you don't, Till you die, you will perish forever. And that doesn't mean go out of existence. What shall we say about this believing? Here's the first and most important and clear thing you can say. In this verse... Scratch that. Four things to say about it. First, not everybody will benefit from what Jesus did. Not everybody will benefit. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So believing calls attention to the fact that there is a condition. If you don't have that faith, then you perish. If you do have that faith, you have eternal life. Not everybody will have eternal life. There will be a division. Second observation. Believing means embracing something is true. When it's a person, it means trusting them. And when it's a promise, it means trusting it. Trusting a person to be what they are and do what they say. That's what Faith is, I say, I believe you or I trust you. I believe that what I'm seeing is what I'm getting and and you will do what you say you're going to do. I'll bring it tomorrow. I trust you. I believe you. Third, in John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, there's another word used to explain believe. I'll read it to you. You can look at it if you want. John 1, 11. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, that is, that is, comma, who believed in his name. See the connection there? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become the children of God. So receiving Jesus is another word used to describe believing. So believing and receiving interpret each other, explain each other. So what does it mean to receive? Believe. And what does it mean to believe? It means to receive him. One more point. That point is worthless without the next point. I hope that you are not among the number who sling around religious jargon with no meaning. To say, I received Jesus means nothing until you have answered the question, as what? An unwelcome guest in your house whom you're going to poison? A person you had to let in because he wants to work on the furnace and you stick him down there and don't want to talk to him? There are all kinds of ways to receive Jesus that have zero effect on your eternity, except to make it worse. So the last point is, as what? Receive as what? And surely the answer to that question is, receive him as what he is. Not what you think he is, or what somebody told you he is, or what you'd like him to be, but as what he is. I'll give you one there are many verses that describe what he is, like all of them almost. But here's one, John six thirty five. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever believes in me Will never thirst. I'm bread. I'm, I'm water. If you believe, you receive me as that bread for your soul, water for your soul. You got thirsts. You got thirsts. You got thirsts. Your heart is a thirst factory. You wake up with thirst. You go to bed with thirst. You. Enter one thing after you got thirsts. You all thirst for a thousand things. Jesus says, I am the kind of being that if you would drink here, your thirst would be satisfied. All of them. Or I'm food. And if you eat here, you won't have that gnawing craving that's ruining your marriage. It's wrecking your sex life. It's making you greedy and dishonest at work, just controlled by these cravings and these longings because Jesus is bread.
0: Did I miss something? Did I miss here? Or uh, did he just say that if you receive Jesus properly, that you would not have these cravings that gnaw at you and destroy your marriage and make you greedy and, uh, do bad things at work and, you know, fiddle with children and, uh, you know, lie on your taxes and all of the things that are frankly, uh, made famous by preachers doing these things. So, It's it's a countless number of preachers that have been in the spotlight for this. And I can think of probably 10 off of the top of my head that have not been in the spotlight that I have known personally that have done this. Now, never mind the bench member in in the pew. We're talking about the people who are closest to God, who know God's word the best, who pray the most, um, who are very sincere in their faith. They don't have any protection from this. Now, if we're just talking about the people in the pew, the numbers skyrocket. Who are these people who are protected from these cravings that you are talking about? John Piper. Has no one in the world properly received Jesus? Has no one received him? So I think this needs a little bit more work. Uh, listeners, maybe you can clue me in on what I'm missing.
1: And when you received him as six-year-old, you received him as a ticket out of hell, you carried him in your back pocket, and frankly, when you sit down, it makes you uncomfortable. That's not saving, receiving. He's Christ, Son of God, Savior. Wrath remover, sin forgiver, righteousness provider, soul satisfier, strengthener. Oh, what isn't he for us? All in all, Paul called him. When you believe that's what you receive, and that means that the rest of life is growing up into that, which means that receiving the gospel is the way you solve every problem in your life. Marriage problems and health problems and every other problem is, I need more. I need more. You're everything I need. And I, I got lot yesterday. I'm tank empty today. So I'm back at the gospel fountain where the blood buys me everything, though I'm such a This is not just basic here. This is life. One of the reasons that at Bethlehem we have a certain vocabulary, I was talking to one of our elders about this the other day, and he wanted to check in to make sure I'm there still. I said, oh, yeah, I'm absolutely there. We talk about not only receiving Jesus as Lord and receiving Him as Savior, we talk about receiving Him as our treasure. This, is, this verse is one of the reasons for that, 635. The most explicit verse is Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. He went and sold everything he had to buy that treasure. So the reason we sin is because we have other treasures besides Jesus. Therefore, every day is a battle to believe the gospel. To believe, to receive, to be satisfied by Jesus as our everything. Treasure is a good summary, just touches on a lot of things. Number six, perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. The most clear and the most important meaning for this is right there in the verse, namely its contrast with eternal life. So you got eternal life here, you got perishing here, so now you know what perishing is. It's eternal, and it's not life. And yet it's existence.
0: I don't know if you caught that or not. Uh, he said it's eternal, it's not life, yet it is existence. So we have eternal conscience. Will we get to torment? I think we will. Let's let's let him continue, though.
1: The second way you know what it is is because of verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Hmm, condemned. That's a word from the courtroom what a judge does. He pronounces sentence and condemns. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. So God has already delivered a judicial sentence over all human beings, guilty, perishing, hell bound, deserving of it, and dead in trespasses. And God owes us nothing, 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 nothing. If he passes over me and does not awaken me and bring me to life, he's done me no wrong. I do him infinite wrong every day of my life. Giving him 2% of my time. Counting him as less valuable than the internet or money or health or fun stuff, videos, games. I damn myself every day. He owes me nothing. So there is a sentence over me, condemned. Condemned. And the clearest verse in the Gospel of John on what that means is chapter 3, verse 36. So just 20 verses later. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. It's already there. That's why verse 18 says, already condemned. And verse 36 says, remains. There is nothing you can imagine, I promise you, there is nothing you can imagine in the universe that is worse than for eternity to have the wrath of God, an omnipotent, holy God resting upon. There is nothing more conceivably worse.
0: And there's your torment.
1: Finally, number seven, life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This does not mean simply that your present existence goes on forever, because that's true of Everybody. Everybody lasts forever. That's not the meaning of eternal life, which you get if you believe. The meaning of eternal life is new birth chapter 6 verse 63 says, "The spirit gives life and 1 John 5:11 says, "This life is in his son. So what happens? It happens like this you're dead, you're rebellious, you're spiritually disinterested and on your way away from God in heaven and God, Blows in his freedom over your life. There's a quickening. There's an awakening. And in that moment, here's what happens. Number one, through the awakening of faith, you are united to Christ. At that union with Christ, life, becomes yours that was in him. And then you forever live with new life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the what? I am life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he Live, and whoever lives and believes in me, she'll never die. Now, in closing. At this point, do not forget the word gave. We're on the word life. And I'm arguing that what's wrong with us is that we're dead. And what needs to happen is that we get life. Okay? That's totally inadequate to understand our salvation. Because it doesn't have anything to do yet with the death of Jesus. He he gave his son so that whoever would believe. And what did he give him unto? I lay down my life. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There are two massive needs, not just one. One is I'm dead. I need life. And the other is I'm guilty and I need forgiveness. I'm under a judge here and I'm in death here. The cross deals with this one. The spirit deals with this one. New birth awakens us to faith and unites us to life. And the cross covers our sin and takes away The wrath of God. The son came to be two things, not one thing. He came to die and in dying purchased for us life and in him is that life. Last closing question. Do you live in the forgiveness and life and freedom of John 3.16? Do you live in the freedom and forgiveness in life of John 3.16? I'm not asking if you give lip service to affirm that this verse is in the Bible and that it's true. That is not. The devil knows this verse is true. I'm asking, do you live here? Was this, was this brought to you as a child and you took it and you stuck it in your pocket and now you live just like everybody else lives? Got all the same values and all the same priorities and all the same everything because you haven't received life We're talking about supernatural life. Eternal life is not the extension of this life. It's giving to us by the Holy Spirit a love for God, a delight, a living joy in God that now is conquering all the other sinful joys in my life. That's what the life is in John 3.16. So, is everything you do permeated with this verse? And my prayer is that God may grant you such faith. Believe the promise of John 3.16. Believe the promise and receive the Son and the life. And you will not perish, but have everlasting life.
0: John Piper, ladies and gentlemen, do you see why I love him so much? I really love me some John Piper. Uh, Christians, you should love John Piper. He's a great preacher, a great champion for your cause. Atheists, you should love him even more. He does most of your work for you, so uh, don't be surprised if over the course of uh, the run of 4s, you uh, hear some more John Piper, <laughs> it would only be a surprise if you didn't. And so, uh, with that, uh, it's been a it's been a great time this week, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Goodbye, everybody.